Hello and welcome to Inspired, your grown-up girl talk. I'm Stacy Fleece and here as always with Samantha Tradelia. Samantha, how are you today? I'm so glad to see you. I'm so good and I'm so excited about today's episode because this is a topic we've talked about internally and also externally for years. I, I uh, So we have with us today Kimberly Davis and honestly I can't believe that Kimberly has not come into our life previously. When you look back, all the way back, I don't know, 15 years ago, when we did um, Financial Wardrobe, which was really focused on trying to teach women different parts of financial planning and 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 having different, uh, well, different pieces of the wardrobe represent different pieces of the financial plan. And, and uh, you and I have talked ad nauseum about friends, colleagues, people we know who, um, women who just don't, I, I, okay, I'm just going to say it, like women who are okay if they can go to the ATM and take $200 out of the ATM, but they don't know where the money is, they don't know the passwords to get into the accounts, they don't look at the statements, they don't, it's like, oh my God, it makes me insane. So Kimberly, fiscal feminist, which I love, title of your website, title of your book, uh, title of your your life's work, I think. I'm so excited to have you here because this is, I don't mean to make light of this subject. This is a very serious subject that I am exhausted by women being victimized by themselves over this. Uh, sorry, it, I'm just going to lay it out. This is, they, they, they are their own worst enemy in this um, in this arena. Amen to that, sister. Amen it to that. It is so important and I can't I can't figure out why we can't get more women to to grab it by the balls and go right. So uh, I'm uh, you're you know you're talking to the to the whatever the saying is the choir or the disciples. I don't. <laughs> I a hundred percent agree with you. It's uh, it is astounding. Um, it's an enigma. It's all those things. I don't understand why women. Well, I do understand it. Okay. But first I want to say, first of all, I think what you're doing with Sparkle is awesome. And I want to commend you on that. And I also want to thank you for having me here today because I love when women are supporting other women and we need to do more and more of that because the only way to get the message out is to just keep talking to each other about it until people are just like, okay, I'll do it. I'll do it. Um, And the reason that I, so I wrote the book, the Fiscal Feminist, a Financial Wake-Up Call for Women. You can get it on Amazon or wherever you buy books. I do have the podcast, The Fiscal Feminist. I have a website. I'm uh, now going to be doing a newsletter as well. It's going to be coming out in April. But the reason that I started it was um, as I, I had to kind of totally recreate my life in my 50s. So I was a corporate securities lawyer in the 80s. So I graduated from law school in 1983. I went to Wall Street in 1983. And I did, you know, corporate securities law. So it was the 80s, right? And I was one of the few women on Wall Street and um, in my law practice. In fact, my very first legal job, I was the first person, the first, the only woman in my entire class in that law firm entering in the 80s. And, you know, it was like I was a product of that movement in the 70s with Gloria Steinem you know, where you were taught that you could go out there and get a career and do it all. I graduated from high school in 1976, which is you could not get a credit card as a woman uh, if you were married without the signature of a man. 
Which so, is insane. <laughs> that's when I graduated from high school, right? I mean, that wasn't, I mean, I know I'm old, but I'm not that old. And well, whatever. I did have my 45th high school reunion last year, but we won't even get into that. But, um, you know, exactly. it wasn't that long ago, right? That we couldn't just go get a credit card. When I was at Morgan Stanley, which was part of my recreation in my 50s, which I will talk about in a minute, um, I worked with a woman there who was in her 70s. And when she got her job in 1975 at Morgan Stanley as a as a wealth advisor, as a financial advisor, they made her get a permission letter from her husband. Stop it. Come on. Stop 100% it. that she Jeez. could work at Morgan Stanley and like be a financial daddy advisor. daddy says it's okay. I mean, <laughs> right? So this is the thing though. Like, okay, so we've come a long way since then. But that being said, no... What really bothers me is that there are a lot of issues out there in the world right now. All of them have, you know, they are all important, right? But because of that, I don't hear people talking about women that much anymore. You know, we still make 82 cents on the dollar. That's that's a fact. We still make 82 cents for every dollar that a man makes for the same job that we have. Um, we have invisible labor issues. We have the motherhood penalty, which means for every a child that a woman has, she gets a 4% decrease in her pay. For every man who has a child, he gets a a 6% increase in his pay. And why is that? Because we are still living anachronistically thinking that the men are the, you know, primary providers when in fact, like a lot of women are the primary breadwinners. So we are still kind of tackling these really bad historical narratives and we, to Stacy's point, are not taking responsibility for ourselves to change that. Like the government's not going to do it. Uh, no. We can try to vote, but women, you know, when people and I don't want to, you know, step on anybody's toes or and we all have our own beliefs. But when women say or women think that inflation is more important than their reproductive rights being controlled, and poor women having to have babies that they may not be able to afford, which will then put them in abject poverty, then I don't understand. I mean, obviously, you know, tr inflation in this year might be more important than their long-term economic rights. And and so, uh, I don't know. You but know, I've had a lot of people women, also, you know, like give me hate about you. the word feminist. Sorry, you know. No, no, no. But it's, it's like so many people have so many opinions about inflation and these different things. But then those are the women a lot of times that don't know how to access their bank accounts or where their investments are, or even if they're on these policies and these different things, that part, like it baffles me as grown ass women, you're not more in control or have a little more agency over your financial wherewithal. A hundred percent. And that I think is the, the bigger conversation and something like we as mothers of daughters, you know, like my mom, one of the very first lessons she ever taught me was you need to always be able to stand on your own two feet after a woman, my mom was a nurse. Her husband had passed away, another fellow nurse, and the woman didn't even know where the checkbook was, how to write yeah. a check, where the money was. And that's a story that, I mean, Stacy and I had a girlfriend that has husband passed away and she was in the same boat and she, you know, this is 2023. It's crazy. Um, no, and I have a lot of clients who come in and they have no idea what their husbands make. They don't know whether they have a 401k. They don't know what their investment accounts are unless, you know, cause I always say, if you're a couple, you have to come in together. 
You're not allowed not to come in and not care about the money that's also in your name. If it's just in your husband's name and he can come in by himself. But if you are on the account, I insist that they come in because if there's a divorce, then a lot of them really don't know how to access their money. They don't know how much money actually is a, mar a married couple they have, which in the end means they're going to get really screwed in the divorce because I write about, you know, divorce and pregame strategy for the divorce. If you don't know where anything is, then don't walk out the door because you need to like gather up all the information so that you actually have a fighting chance of getting something out of that divorce, right? Because once people don't like each other and you have to subpoena documents, they're not going to be very forthcoming. And I had this happen to me. I mean, I was a corporate securities lawyer and I was an investment banker. I then had three kids and my ex-husband uh, was in private equity and my children were young, so I decided I would take care of the children, but I had every intention of going back to work. But because he was transferred to London, presumably for two years, I went because I'm a team player, but he still lives there 30 years later. I was there for 14 years and it totally disrupted my career. So I ended up, you know, taking care of the children. I did some things over there that I could do professionally, but you know, I was it was always kind of like a something for me to do. I had a fashion business, which was kind of successful, but I realized I didn't like manufacturing clothes and I did some other stuff in the educational realm, but I didn't do what I really wanted to do. And the long, the short of that is I took my eye off the financial ball. Like I wasn't quite sure. I didn't know he had offshore accounts. I didn't really know how much was in his 401k. I didn't know about some accounts that he had when I moved here. And then we started to get divorced. I had to keep going back and forth to London we had agreed that we weren't going to get divorced until my daughter graduated from high school, my youngest. That didn't happen. Uh, as soon as I moved, he said he wanted a divorce. And two minutes after he said that, he took control of all the bank accounts and locked out. I couldn't get into them. I didn't know the passwords. He changed them. The private banker wouldn't talk to me. And I literally had no access to money. We're in California. My daughter, my older daughter is at Georgetown. I had to go get an interim court order in London for him to actually. And they actually do that? I mean, they did it. Uh, he did it. And the private banker, now this was maybe 12 years ago, though at the private banker at HSBC in London, I called him and I said, you know, he can't just do that. And he was like, well, you know, his name's on the account. And I'm like, my name's on the account too. And he's like, well, your name's on some of the accounts, but not all the accounts. But nevertheless, you'd have to speak to him about the password. Um, and so but then I had to get my solicitor over there involved. And then I had to get a barrister because then we had to go to court and I had to get an interim court order because I literally, whatever money I had was what I had until he was compelled by the court to pay me for the interim period of time until the divorce was decreed, which took two years. Like That's what did he think my kids and I were going to do for two years? Well, and you well, said, you talk about, and I love this, you say, don't let your partner become your plan. Right. Know of your own life, which I like, I feel like we need to say it louder for the women in the back, but you, I feel like you did a lot of the right things. You knew where the money was. You had your name on the accounts. You had the, you had the usernames and passwords to be able to get in, but then he goes in and changes them all and shuts you out. Was there something you could have done differently. I mean, how does that, how does, how is, does that still happen? <laughs> how well, does I that think happen? also how in do, London, how it's, do we a, protect it's ourselves. Yeah. I think in London, it's a different thing, but for me, I always say, so I agree. I always say your partner can't be your plan. 
There is no Prince Charming. There is no Princess Charming. There is no Charming. You are the person that's going to make this happen. I, um, and so I believe that my, I've made a lot of mistakes, but the first mistake was agreeing to move to London and not enforcing that we only stay for two years. That was my first mistake because my career took a real hit. I was able to become the Phoenix from the flames in my fifties, but that was like some weird, you know, resilience, necessity and divine intervention. Plus I did have a good resume, but I still had problems. Right. But with respect to the other thing is that I, all of my money was commingled with this guy, my credit, everything. I believe everybody should have separate accounts, right? I should have had an account in the name of Kimberly Davis. And then I should have had um, a, a joint account. And then we should have been very intentional about what was in that joint account so that we both had separate accounts, whether one of us is working or not, we're both equal stakeholders, right? So why should I work for invisible, do all that labor in the house and everything and not get paid, right? So I could have arranged where I got some sort of paycheck from him every month that went into my separate account so that I would have had at least some money. So my eldest daughter, who's a lawyer in New York City, she got married in October. Um, she does very well for herself. She works at a big law firm. She married a guy who also does very well for himself. He's in PR, um, but more in the political realm. He doesn't make as much money as her. I believe everyone should have a prenup. No, I didn't even like no one even talked about prenups in 1987 when I got married. Like nobody talked about them. They thought so only rich people, people still feel that's like a taboo. OK, well, that's bullshit. And they're not being very smart. So this is why I think they need to like wake up. I love uh, this. I mean, first of all, 30 percent of millennials now have prenups. You want to know why? Because they have a boatload of student debt and they need to figure out who the hell is going to pay for it. And they don't want to be responsible for that stuff. Right. They need to yep. sort that out. Secondly, whoever's going to step away from the workplace, whether it's my daughter, Allison, or her husband, Sam, in their prenup, I have come up with a formula. I've been talking a lot about this and being interviewed about it. If whoever steps out, because what happened to me was I didn't get compensated for anything I did for that family. And I did, but then it was taken away from me and I can explain that. But in her case, in the in the prenup, it says take 60% of what whoever steps out was making and then add what their max contribution would be to their 401k, what they were contributing to social security, because you won't be doing any of that when you're not working. You add it all up together. You add a 2% inflation rate to it. And you add the number of years that you're out of the workforce for how much time, whether part-time or full-time. And that's your base settlement. Which so is it means, brilliant. It's brilliant. It may because... mean you get more than the other person, right? But at least you're not leaving it to a judge who doesn't know you to decide or to mediation when you both hate each other. And the other person is going to say, yeah, it doesn't matter. I'm not, you know, that was, that was your responsibility to do. You don't get any compensation for that. But the reality is you haven't contributed to social security. You haven't done your 401k. You took a career hit that you have to come back from. You're kind of screwed. So mm -hmm. this is really important. This is how you don't live in abject poverty in your retirement. And women are living five years longer than men, statistically. We have longer retirement periods to fund. We have more medical expenses to fund. Uh, okay, do you want to be poor because you don't want to talk about this before you get married? And by the way, if you can't talk about this with your partner whatever that looks like, you've got then you have a pretty crappy relationship you need to reevaluate. 
Yeah, you need to re- you're going to have bigger problems down talk. the road. So yeah, yeah so, you can still be sexy. You can still be hot and talk about money. And talk you can about money. still be a hot tamale and talk about, talk about money. So both Kimberly and Stacey, you guys both see a lot of, uh, uh, as the as Fleece likes to put it, you get to open the financial kimono, right? In your, your field. It's not so much in the insurance world for me. Why do we, why is it that women are so you know, maybe nonchalance the word I want to use or not interested or just not, um, not giving themselves the knowledge that they need. Why is that? I, I think they are interested. I think it's very easy for them to acquiesce and give the man the control of that. They like, they, they're interested, but they don't want to deal with it. It's like, Oh, you deal with it. That's a, that's a husband thing to do. And then they fuck themselves down the road. Well, and it's an anachronistic way of thinking, right? Because we are told as we're growing up that we have to be perfect girls. And we're even told that today. I mean, this whole Cinderella thing and, you know, you need to, you know, it's not uh, good for women to negotiate or they are too aggressive. You know, the whole thing about women in negotiation, everybody should m- negotiate for themselves on a micro and macro level in your professional world and in your macro, in your uh, macro world, professional, micro, your, your home life, 75% of all caregiving in this country is done by women even when they are the primary breadwinners, i.e. even when they make more than their husbands. That was you know, yeah. And you know, that's crazy because we are not negotiating on our micro level with our, with our partner. And sometimes it's like, I talked to a woman and I gave us, I was at a speaking engagement uh, that I spoke at the other night. And one woman said, you're a hundred percent right. And you know, I'm, I was always like, it's just easier to do it myself. Yeah. But then you're exhausted. You're working all day. You're exhausted. You're burnt out. That's why so many women are burnt out. And, you know, you don't need to be perfect. It's okay if you don't do all the housework and you need to negotiate and make sure that you're not doing that. And the other thing that I think is outrageous, which leads to why women have this weird view of themselves and where they stand, is when women are primary uh, breadwinners, uh, not an insignificant uh, percentage of them, and I have the percentage in my book, will actually lie and say that their husbands make more than them. Why? Which is so stupid. What is that about? Like, are we so insecure in our relationships with men that we can't, we don't want to, like, we feel like if we're doing really well, we're going to be eclipsing them. I mean, this is insanity. This is some, and that's of our own making. And so I don't understand that. I don't get it. We have a girlfriend who's a very successful doctor in the Bay Area, and she is not afraid to say, you know, my husband's stay-at-home dad, and I make make the money, and I go to work. And you watch when she says it, people, women will look at her like, like it's it's an odd thing to hear. And I'm just like, yeah, girl, like it's great that you're able to do those, and you know everybody's able to do. But it's still a weird thing to hear come out of somebody's mouth. I mean, I'm used to it, but I watch people. And they're not, it's not, I don't know if they're not okay with it. They're just like taken back, like, whoa, you know? I mean, 50% of the workforce is women, you know? I mean, we are working um, and we are still not progressing in the way that we should. Like in financial advisory, still it's like 25% of the people are women, which is ridiculous. Um, But we don't also make it accommodating, right? For women to, to be able to work and have flexibility and still be mothers, which everybody wants us to be, okay? So they want us to be a mom like we don't work and work like we don't have kids. Well, that's impossible because we basically have holistic lives with kids and sometimes 
other care responsibilities for parents or whatever we have to do. Right. And so I don't, you know, like, I think that women just need to, it doesn't mean that you are aggressive or you're confrontational if you want to advocate for yourself, but if you want to just break it down, like what are the tangible reasons why you need to do this so that you, you don't put yourself into hardship? It's as simple as this. Think of it like a medical diagnosis, right? If you wait and wait and wait to go to the doctor and then you wait too long, the diagnosis is going to be really bad, i.e. you're probably going to kick your, you know, you're going to kick, kick, you know, pop your clogs and die. So if you wait with this whole thing with your financial life and you you don't want to know like, hey, how much money do I have coming in? How much money do we have going out? How much money do I have that's my own? Um, what does my social security look like? Do we have an emergency savings fund? Do I know what my, my credit rating is? And do I know what my partner's credit rating is? Is it affecting mine? We don't, if we don't do any of that stuff and just say something happens to the partner who's taking care of you, you might find out that he hasn't paid taxes. You might find out that he has a crappy credit score that is now going to be your, that is your credit score. You might find out that maybe he had a gambling problem you don't know and you thought you had all these investments and you don't have bupkis. So you might find out a lot of that stuff. And in my case, I um, had this divorce decree that occurred and it, the first one was okay, right? Um, it took two years, but we got there and I was given a settlement amount and alimony. Okay, perfect. I had kids in school. So I had a kid in Georgetown that was expensive. So a lot, some of the money was going to go to that. And then two kids that were in private high school in California, because when they came from London, that was just the best option for them. And they'd already been through a lot of turmoil. So that's what we did. Okay. So that was all going great. And then six months later, I, and I write about this in my book, which is what happened to why I kind of woke up and was like, oh shit, the guy uh, stops paying alimony, i.e. my ex-husband. He, I get this email from my solicitor in London. I'm like, why is she emailing me? This is over. You know, I don't want to hear from her. She's like, oh, by the way, I just got an email from your husband's solicitor. He is no longer working. He had a breakdown or some completely lied some manufactured bullshit. thing. And um, he's going back to court against you because he is going to say that he cannot afford the alimony. He's not going to be paying you anymore. And I was like, I mean, what I really, first of all, I started shaking because I was just like, oh, I have a kid in Georgetown. I have a certain amount of money, but my tuition fees alone are like 120000 a year between the kids in high school. And I mean, I have to pay rent. I, I've only been in this country like a couple of years. I haven't established myself because I've been going back and forth to London to fight with this guy. Right. So, and I have had legal fees I have to pay. So I was shaking and it just started a five-year period of absolute insomnia. I could not sleep. Every morning at 3 a.m. I would like wake up, I'd go outside in the backyard and I would think, how is this going to end? I would pour myself a Jameson and I'd be like, <laughs> I am well and truly screwed. I don't know where I'm going with this, but we could be homeless if, if, I, if, if this doesn't work out, right? Then of course, there were more legal fees. So I managed to like bully him into giving me some money for like tuition for a year. And, and so he did that. I guess he was slightly guilted by the children, but he wouldn't give any more money. So I, I was like, okay, well, I have this amount of money and I got to make this last, but 
this this could go on for years this court case because the court thing was you know the the schedule was so full they couldn't get to our our case so then i was like okay i can't live like this i'm 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 got cortisol coming out of my ears i'm drinking too much i'm petrified uh and then I, and then one day i just threw my hands up and said you know what i'm so effing tired of being afraid that I'm done being afraid. I'm going to let the universe like just put stuff in front of me and see what happens. So I made getting a job become my job. And at 53, I or 54, I applied and I applied and I applied. And yeah, there weren't a lot of people lining up to hire a 54 year old woman. I had a great resume, Georgetown Law, Georgetown undergrad, two big Wall Street firms, blah, blah, blah. But I was old, you know, no one cared. I, I couldn't even get a job at Neiman Marcus. I applied there and they were like, no. I was like, are you fucking kidding me? I can't even sell perfume at Neiman Marcus. Really? Uh, so, so long story crazy. short. Huh? That's so yeah. crazy. I don't know if they thought I was going to do like a hostile takeover. I had another lady tell me, and this is where I really drew the line. I went to like a executive headhunter person and she was just like, you need to take all that law school stuff off and all your prior jobs as a lawyer and a banker. It's just, you're not, you know, it's, you're just too overqualified. And I looked at her and I said, I have worked my ass off for this stuff. Yeah, I had those jobs. I am not taking those off so I can go be an executive assistant for some. No, any, no, but that was what she told me. And I left there. I was in tears. I was just like, wow, this is where I'm at at like 54 years old. This is my life. And this then I insane. somehow kept applying and then I got the interview at Morgan Stanley. And then one thing led to the next. I got the job. I passed the test. And by the way, the day I was hired at Morgan Stanley, they hired another guy who was paid $10,000 more than me with less qualifications. But I needed a job and I needed health insurance. Right. Um, and luckily for me, that worked out. I got I joined the Bonson Group eventually. And now I have a very large book of business which has enabled me to launch this program because as I became more successful, I was like, you know what? I need to talk to women of all economic but strata, here's what I not love. just the rich women that Your I deal story, with. You've been through it, right? So you're not just oh, sitting I mean, on the I other side. I mean, I was selling side. my jewelry in a parking lot in Tustin in Orange County, all my gold jewelry because I ran out of money and I didn't, I, you know, and then when that second decree came down, my alimony went from 180,000 a year, which was to pay tuitions as well, I might add, to 20,000 a year. Yeah, that's and I still had kids in college. Nothing had changed. So, okay, so we've got a lot of women that that we know and and multitudes that we don't that just don't have control of this situation at all. They have sat back, they've they've acquiesced control. And they're thinking, okay, probably not my best plan. I need to, I need to shift the narrative here. What are the top three things you think women could do to start down that path of taking ownership of their own financial futures? Well, the first thing they should do, I mean, if they are with a partner and whether you're living with them or you're married to them, if you're co-mingling or cohabitating and you're buying stuff together, you, you need to know how much your partner makes, and you can tell them how much you make. You need to know what accounts everybody has. You need to look at the tax returns when they're done before you sign them and understand what's on the schedules, what you own. So, so please read things before you sign. Don't yeah. And also ask, you know, sit down with your partner and say, okay, I want to understand 
where we're at here. Now, if that person isn't going to be forthcoming, then you need to do your own forensic detective work and find that out. Because as I tell people, like I said before, if you think you want to get divorced, do not walk out the door until you have a handle on what it is, all those accounts, you know, what accounts there are to the extent you can figure it out. Because you need to be checking your credit report. You need to just look at what do we own? Do I know what we own? Do I know how much money my partner is making? Or if they have a family business, how much is that business making? Because a lot of times when something does happen and the family business, like if you're in a community property state, even if you're not part of the family business, if you've been married for a while, you will be uh, attributed ownership and you will get half of that, some of that. But if you don't know what it's worth, like I've had people say to me, well, the business was doing really well a couple of years ago. Now my husband's saying, you know, now that we're getting divorced, the, the business doesn't make any money. It's really going down the tubes. Well, and yeah, so then happens. you have, yeah. And then you have to subpoena the documents, right? And a lot of times those aren't very forthcoming or who knows what they've been doctored. So I, you know, knowledge is power. Start with an inventory of where you're at at the minute. What do you have coming in? What accounts are there yourself and with the partner and the partner's accounts? What does a credit situation look like? Know your credit score. You And if you have credit linked to somebody else, you'll be able to see what's going on there. And it could be very deleterious to you because if you do get divorced and you haven't had any credit on your own, um, it will be very hard for you to kind of create your own credit if the credit is bad. Also, even if a court says, hey, uh, wife's going to pay the visa bill and the husband's going to pay the Amex bill, if husband doesn't pay the Amex bill, they will come to you because they are not held by the decree. So in a community property state, it, it, it's very, very difficult to unwind. They will come after you and say, sorry, he's not paying. I don't care what your divorce decree says because it's happened to me. Um, you you have to pay or we're going to put you in delinquency and it's going to show up as a collection on, on your credit. So you're trying to start a new life. This is going to dog you. Yeah. Which so I would say the first frightening, you know, it's just, you have to do this inventory and you need to start a conversation. Maybe your partner doesn't think you should be doing this, but if they do, then if they don't think you should be wondering about this, this should be like alarm bells going off. This in your should head. be a red flag flapping in the wind. Fiscalfeminist.com is where you can find all things Kimberly Davis. Her and book, try to listen to the podcast too. Her, the yeah, her feminist. podcast. She's doing some great things. And I just, I've known you for a while and I find you just to be so admirable. Like what you're doing for women and what you've been through in your story, I think really um, can help a lot of women and maybe even women that aren't really ready to have those conversations yet. Maybe now this, this conversation will get them to think about it. Everybody else get out there this week, get your financial house in order and be in 